Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, Perp Web number 78, day three. Uh, we've had uh, the previous two days, of course, Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club talking about uh, air and inflammation, blood interfaces and inflammation. And then uh, yesterday we had a, uh, a really good uh, talk regarding uh, acute kidney injury and fluid volu- volume balances, uh, things like that from uh, John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets. Uh, urine output, basically, how much is, uh, when is enough enough? Uh, and then today, we're going to wrap it up with my lecture, which is going to be on uh, uh, cardiac surgery associated AKI and a couple of articles that are kind of the tale of two, two, uh, two cities, if you will. Um, and uh, we're going to get into that here shortly. I'm joined here in the studio with my good friend and colleague, Ramsha Azmat. And Ramsha is a, a graduate of Rush University. He's been with us now for uh, almost a year. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, has, uh, she, she experienced perfusion in her very first job through COVID which was, uh, I think, a terrific experience, painful, but terrific experience, Very because good. now you see how great the job can be. Yeah. Okay, now we have a really nice schedule. You're here with me this morning. She found out she was coming in to help me uh, with this last night, um, because uh, I do a lot better when I have somebody else with me <laughs> here in the studio, as you can tell. And uh, we have Modima coming in, uh, uh, joining us. Good morning to you. And uh, we have, look at here, we have Ann Grecho. Ann is our new ABCP president. And I uh, want to congratulate you on that. So good morning to you, Ann. Good morning. Good, Thank you good very morning, much, Ann. Joe. Good morning, Ancha. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, thanks. Lots Outstanding. to do, but it'll be great. You look like you're in the hospital. I am, so I might rush out. I got a little case to kind of just keep up with in the OR, but um, I should be able to be back and forth and hopefully here mostly. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to get just dive right into it. Uh, everybody knows you'll see stuff scrolling along the bottom for our uh, uh, viewers today. There's ways to reach us, Perfusion educa- contact at perfusioneducation.com. we got our call-in number. Um, you can go to PerfWeb, see our schedule, which will be coming up. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube, all of that kind of stuff. We'd love for you to call in, though, of course, if you want to have a question, would like to engage. But I do want everyone to congratulate, and I don't mean to be gratuitous about this. To me, it's really very, um, uh, it's an honor for me to have somebody who has achieved the level you have in our in in what is our credentialing body the abcp and reaching the uh, position of president and i i, I want to make sure that i make note of that and not understate it it's a it's a heck of an accomplishment and you deserve congratulations for it so congratulations from all of us thank you so much Thanks. you're welcome my my uh, talk today is uh is is really it's about a lot of different topics. Uh, acute kidney, cardiac surgery associated acute kidney injury is kind of the theme, but I'm going to be getting into perhaps some provocative comments about different um, ways we view how we manage patients and what effect that management, perfusion management has on their outcomes and uh, along with your your current role with the board you're also and very involved in the abcp i mean in the uh, sts and uh hopefully you'll be able to uh, uh uh you know give us some feedback as to what the data actually says about uh cardiac surgery associated aki and also uh uh, acute renal failure following cardiac surgery where you need uh, dialysis. Okay, so Freud believed that in all instincts, that all instincts in, in humans fit into one of two classes, the life drive 
and the death drive. And that's, you know, basically Eros and Thanatos, Eros being the god of life and Thanatos the god of death. And uh, so I thought that was going to be a, a good uh, start to our presentation today regarding cardiac surgery associated uh, acute kidney injury, AKI. It is actually very high. It's up to 30% of the cardiac surgery population. However, keep in mind, and this is very important, that cases of AKI that lead to de novo dialysis or need for new dialysis where they had not previously needed it is about 1% to 5% about 1% for patients with routine or, or, or isolated cabbage, I probably shouldn't use routine, and about 5% with the more complex cases and with uh, valve replacements. Um, so, you know, as we are well aware, cardiac surgery induces systemic inflammatory response from operative trauma on its own and then also exposure to the uh, cardiopulmonary bypass system. Cardiopulmonary bypass or CPB decreases the effect of renal perfusion pressure up to 30% and contributes to ischemia and reperfusion injury. Renal perfusion is worsened by longer bypass times. I think we all know that. Intraortic balloon pump use, inotrope use, vasopressors use, cardiogenic shock, and hemodilution with hematocrits less than 25% all have deleterious impact on the kidneys. Evidence also suggests that a lack of pulsatile flow, though I disagree with this, can impair kidney perfusion despite relative preservation of mean arterial pressure. And the reason that I say that is that, you know, even with the, well, first of all, pulsations with a CPB circuit are completely non-physiologic. There's nothing physiologic about that pulse waveform that you get with the pump. Additionally, you know, what's the size of a normal ascending aorta? Four centimeters, right? Plus or minus? Yeah, maybe 3.8, two to four? So anything over four? Yeah, okay, so let's say three. Yeah, three centimeters. What is that? What's the size of your typical aortic cannula? Much, much smaller than that. Much smaller than that, right? And then the three-eighths inch tubing, uh, that comes from the uh, pump circuit and its big long length. Really difficult to jet out of a small little hole like that without having pressures that are, 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 are ridiculously high to generate the kind of pulse characteristic you see from a left ventricular ejection. We agree at least on that? Okay, good. Um, so there's also, of course, macro and microscopic emboli, uh, which happens from the aortic cannulation, aortic clamp placement and release. Shearing forces of the CPB circuit can cause hemolysis and release of plasma-free hemoglobin, which is toxic to the kidney. Um, and then, of course, you know, ischemic muscle injury during the procedure can result in rhabdomyolysis. And you would have, of course, you know, plasma hemoglobin there and myoglobin as well. So there's a lot of things. My whole point of this is that there's a lot of things that happen that can cause acute kidney injury. And I think that's why... AKI is so high and really almost unacceptably high. But those patients that require dialysis, new dialysis following cardiac surgery, one to five percent is still unacceptably high, but nowhere near 30 percent. So we have a, an issue, we have a problem, I think, that should be addressed, but it is not 
30% of patients that have cardiac surgery have, have to have dialysis. It's a much lower number than that. Still, however, I will argue, and I think fairly, that it is unreasonably high, and we should do things to improve it significantly. So this now becomes a tale of not two uh, intrinsic traits of humanity, but actually becomes a tale of two uh, publications in scientific or ostensibly scientific journals. This article was written by uh, Al Stammers, uh, along with Linda Mongero and uh, Curdy Patel, and it's zero balance ultrafiltration during cardiopulmonary bypass is associated with decreased urine output. That is the title. That is their their theory, uh, written in the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology in March of 2021. And uh, you can go and read the abstract if you'd like to do that. Uh, the methods are described here, and I think it's fair for me to read them to you. Consecutive cardiac surgical patients where CPB was used from the Specialty Care Operative Procedure Registry, known as SCOPE, between January 2016 and September 2019 at 215 hospitals throughout the United States. The scope registry was established in 2011, and it's used for national quality control. It serves multifunctional purpose, focused on enhancement. It goes on and on. Uh, national policies and procedures were established using a best practice and uh, evidence approach and distributed to all facilities. Okay, so this is their method. Well, I mean, I'm not sure, and let me just go to their conclusions, if I may. The use of registry data from more than 200 hospitals across America has shown that the use of ZBuff is associated with reduced intraoperative urine output in cardiac surgical patients that supports our previous findings when CUF was examined, continuous ultrafiltration. Although the reduction in urine outputs were modest, they are related to the total volume of exchange fluid that may affect renal injury when large volumes are used, especially in patients sensitive to acute injury. Further research is necessary to confirm these findings. When an acknowledgement, we wish to express our sincere gratitude to the Perfusion Associates, especially the care participate daily in the quality improvement process that is dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Okay. That was a lot. So I finished reading this article and I read the entire article and I wasn't sure if the article was about Z-buff and acute kidney injury, urine output and renal failure during cardiac surgery or if it was about how great specialty care in the scope registry was. And I find this to be disingenuous and I find this to be something that we as a society need to become more aware of. Just because something gets published in a journal does not necessarily mean that it is a good, that it's good science. In my view, this is not good science. On the other hand, the tale of two articles, in Clinical Cardiology, published November 27th of 2021, so about nine months after the previous study that we just described by Candle and uh, uh, Ed Darling was involved, Jeff Riley was involved, uh, some names I know, Bruce Searles, uh, who I know, a lot of people that I know in this article. And uh, here is their, their article, which was a basically a meta-analysis the hypothesis is that ultrafiltration during cardiac surgery increases the risk of developing acute kidney injury. They described their methods where they went through and they looked at all of these various articles. They identified 12 studies with a total of 8,000 patients. There was no statistically significant difference in the incidence of AKI, AKI between the groups who underwent ultrafiltration and the control group, group who did not. Subgroup analysis on patients with previous renal insufficiency also yielded no significant difference. 
Um, and then they talk about subgroup analysis, how much ultrafiltrate, up to 2,900, though I've done much higher than that. And in conclusion, ultrafiltration in cardiac surgery is not associated with increased AKI incidence and may be so safely used even in baseline chronic injury patients. That, I believe, is the accurate understanding done through a, a, a very excellent paper describing how ultrafiltration works and doesn't work and what it does and what it doesn't do. So I recommend everybody read both articles and draw your own conclusions. These are my conclusions of these two articles. In their con uh, continued conclusion, in, in ultrafiltration and cardiac surgery is safe and does not increase the risk of AKI, even in patients with previous kidney problems. Also, the removal of volume, a volume of filtrate above 2,900 during the procedure was not shown to negatively affect the outcomes. And this graph that you're looking at here, and they had several in the interest of time, I didn't put them all up. It's ultrafiltration and AKI subgroup analysis according to the history of AKI or not. AKI, you know, of course, it describes what that is. So if you look at the top, it's study or subgroup. And in the, uh, this part, you have history of kidney insufficiency and you look here at the risk ratio and you can see that the data sub favors ultrafiltration in these patients. And if you look here, these are patients without previous kidney insufficiency. And you see again that the data strongly favors the use of uh, ultrafiltration uh, in cardiac surgery patients. And there's a whole variety of reasons why we do it. Uh, but of course, the previous, the first study I pointed out to you was really talking about Z-buff. And this is a yeah. very important key to my presentation to you today because Z, I'm going to go over what all of these things are. When we talk about ultrafiltration and we talk UF and we talk about cuff and we talk about muff and we talk about Z-buff, we talk about alphabet soup. <laughs> ultrafiltration is an umbrella term. You're removing volume with a hemoconcentrator, ultrafiltration. Cuff is nothing more than continuous ultrafiltration. So you're just basically ultrafiltrating on a, at a continuous rate. And I guess that rate can be adjusted by how much flow is going through the hemoconcentrator or how um, unoccluded uh, the effluent line is, or how much vacuum you have on the effluent line, what the pressure, delta P across the, your transmembrane pressure really, between the blood phase and the ultrafiltrate phase of the hemoconcentrator, a whole bunch of things are, are, are variables into how much continuous ultrafiltration you're really doing. You can do as little as 10 cc's a minute to as many as uh, uh, 500 a minute. It just really depends. So when you say cuff, what does that really mean? When you say muff, it's modified ultrafiltration. Well, modified ultrafiltration, really more something you see in pediatric surgery. And it became, you know, it basically is you remove volume from the patient, ultrafiltrated and put it right back in the patient post bypass. So your cannulas are still in. Frequently used in the pediatric world for volume control, right? Uh, but there is a secondary benefit of removing inflammatory mediators yes. and other evil humors that are floating around secondary to the processes that take place when you go on cardiopulmonary bypass. And then you have Z-buff, zero balance ultrafiltration. And what Z-buff means is that you are not changing the volume of the patient whatsoever or the total blood volume, you are removing fluid a, a, an amount and replacing that amount with some other fluid. Now, generally speaking, when you do Z-buff, and I, it was not elucidated in the article written by Stammers and uh, colleagues, uh, but my assumption is 
there was hyperkalemia. Cardioplegia given, too much cardioplegia, yeah. or, you know, the right amount of cardioplegia, but the patient got a high potassium load for whatever reason. Could have been a, a, a glucose issue, you've got potassium coming in and out of the cell, or an insulin issue. I mean, there's so many factors that affect that besides just cardioplegia and the infusion of, of potassium, but that's also not uncommon. That's yeah. not an uncommon occurrence. And so what perfusionists have learned to do is to hemoconcentrate off a liter and give a liter of a fluid that does not contain potassium and dilute down the potassium. So you remove, and I'm going to show you a diagram here shortly, but when you remove ultrafiltrate, it is isoosmotic. You run through a hemoconcentrator, the blood flow is going through, the ultrafiltrate comes out. If the potassium is seven in the blood, the potassium of the ultrafiltrate is seven, and the potassium of the blood downstream of the hemoconcentrator is seven. Nothing changes. There's no selective removal of anything. All you're doing is removing plasma water that is isoosmotic, meaning you don't change the concentration in the blood and the amount that's in the ultrafiltrate is exactly the same as what it is in the, in the blood plasma, right? So then you use saline. Well, saline, uh, as is diagrammed in red, has a sodium of 154 in contrast plasma is about 138 to 142 so you will increase your sodium when you do when you do zebuff with sodium chloride um, your chloride level is 154 although your normal chloride is between 99 and 104 your bicarb is zero so you will dilute the bicarb which means you have to give some sodium bicarb which has even more sodium in it on the other hand, if you were to have used a bicarb-based solution, in this case it shows duosol, but there's prismasol and there's uh, next stage fluid, and I, I, I don't remember all the names of all the different fluids that are out there, but they're bicarb-based fluids, you can get potassium, in this case is two, but it could be zero, it can be four, it can be three, your sodium is 140, which is normal. Your calcium, your magnesium, your chloride, your bicarb. Bicarb is actually a little high, but it, 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 and it will actually give you a little bit of a metabolic alkalosis, but not too terribly bad. Uh, glucose, and of course, a calculated osmolarity, which is basically the same. So it is a truly, it is a much more, physiologic fluid than is sodium chloride. So if you're gonna do a study, if you're gonna publish a study that says Z-buff may decrease urine output, which results in AKI, you have to at least describe how the Z-buff was performed yeah. and what replacement fluid was being used when you did the procedure. And how, you know, so to, in, in my simple mind, that's a, that's a no-brainer. When we look at the total body water volume of people, um, the, uh, we're about 40 liters of fluid, normal 70 kilo person, right? 25 liters of that is intracellular. About 12 liters of it is interstitial fluid and three liters of plasma volume with the red cells, it makes it five liters. But of the plasma volume, the, 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 the non-solid uh, uh, part of blood is about three liters and that all totals up to about 40. So it's very interesting and I think very uh, uh, important to point out that you can hide an amazing, a massive amount of fluid in the interstitial space. Most people don't realize there's 12 liters of it there, right? Normally, I've seen patients who were 30 liters fluid overloaded, 30, and uh, seen them get better when that volume was able to get off of them. Yeah. In terms of renal failure, and renal acute kidney injury and, and, and acute renal failure, there's a lot of 
reasons or well there's a lot of forces involved with how the kidney works right you have hydrostatic forces and osmotic forces and you have the efferent and the a the afferent and the efferent arterioles and you have that pressure differential if you increase your afferent arteriole you decrease the flow to the kidney if you and decrease gfr if you increase the efferent uh, 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 pressure or, or constrict the efferent arteriole in any way, your hydrostatic pressure goes up transiently, but of course that starts to equalize and your DFR goes down because you start getting congestion. Local inflammation of the kidney itself, tubular leakage, venous congestion, uh, inflammatory processes all play a role in the kidney working. And then of course, one cannot ignore the glycocalyx and how that is affected by going on cardiopulmonary bypass and you start getting plasma leakage through the endovascular endothelium. But that's not all that makes kidneys work. You also have, and I'm not gonna get into this in any big long depth, but you have the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which also plays a role and affects ADH. Of course, you know, if you have uh, ADH, which is antidiuretic hormone, if you have, um, uh, let's say, SIADH, you get diagnosed with SIADH, you know, you go in to the doctor, you get your labs done, your, your sodium comes back 128, and they're like, what the heck? And it usually is a diagnosis of secretion of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone is responsible for the reabsorption of water and uh, so you don't excrete it. And so your sodium goes down from dilutional uh, causes. Here is a standard cardiopulmonary bypass system. And in this standard cardiopulmonary bypass system, now generally speaking, we don't put our oxygenator by, down by the foot. We have ours reversed of this, but the diagram works, okay? And on the right side, what you're gonna see is the what is round and blue is the patient's heart, okay? The middle is your venous reservoir. And to the right will be your yellow ultrafiltrate, the reservoir volume being reduced by ultrafiltration. So let me play this video for you and I'll pause it. So you go on bypass, and that is exactly what happens to your heart. Your heart is empty. Now your entire vascular system is not empty. If you completely drain the venous capacitance system, it won't flow. Yeah. So there is volume, but significantly less volume. Your CVP is zero, for example, um, but you still have uh, probably of the, of the five liters total you may have started with, you probably have two, two and a half liters, about 50% of it still in your circulatory system while you're on bypass. But the heart is empty, okay? Now we're gonna ultrafiltrate. Now, did you see what happened there? By ultrafiltrating, you see the reservoir volume went down, concentrating the blood volume in the reservoir. But if you noticed, the heart volume did not change. The heart volume over here stays the same, empty. It's empty whether this tank is full or this tank is empty. All I've done is increased, de basically decreased the plasma water volume of this blood, which gives me a higher hemoglobin, higher plasma proteins, and improves my DO2 and improves my colloid oncotic pressure. So somebody, anybody at Ramsh, I'm counting on you to do this today. Somebody has to explain to me how that process reduces urine output how that process creates AKI. Somebody, somebody, so you gotta do it. You're charged with that today. This is what a patient that looks fluid overload looks like on the left, okay? 
we see this. Yeah. You know, this is not uncommon to see in the ICU. Massively fluid overloaded. But what I'm showing you is, now this is not this patient's heart particularly. This is a different heart. But when you see this on the outside, they look like this on the inside. This heart is not only dilated from intracavitary pressure. That heart is swollen. That heart is edematous. This is not an uncommon phenomenon. And when you have a heart where you have translocated a tremendous amount of plasma water into the interstitial space, as we previously described, you increase the, you decrease rather, the perfusion, uh, 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 pre you decrease the perfusion pressure through, or you increase the resistance of the blood flow going through the parenchyma of the tissue. So when you, your tissue is swollen, the, the, the perfusion through it is very, very poor, which leads to further dysfunction. Well, if the heart looks like this, the kidneys look like that. The liver looks like that. The brain looks like that. Oh, yeah. And so fluid overload is in and of itself an, in, an independent indicator of major morbidity and mortality, including, including acute renal failure. Yeah. So having your fluid balance normalized is far, now I don't think you should desiccate patients, yeah. but you definitely should correct your COP by correcting your albumin, giving and uh, removing an appropriate amount of volume, only giving blood if you really need it. Yeah. Um, but I'm very, I'm a big believer in DO2, so I'm not going to sit there and run a hemoglobin of six. Uh, for any protracted period of time, because that is in itself terribly deleterious yeah. to the kidneys. And that too was not really elucidated very well mm -hmm. in that study that I discussed. Did you read it? Read the study? Yeah. yeah. Did you read oh, both yeah. articles? We'll talk about it here real quick. I'm almost done with my slides. In fact, this is my last slide. We use an approach called hyperkalemic myocardial preservation. So Basically, what we do is we take patients who have had previous cardiac surgery, or it could be just a patient who wants better cosmesis, uh, and they have not had anything done in their, uh, in their uh, uh, mediastinum, and we do the mitral valve through a right anterior thoracotomy approach. You did one of these yeah. cases with me, right? I've done well over 100 of them. I don't know exactly how many. I have to really kind of mm -hmm. tease this data out, but over the past 10 years. I have had zero perioperative or early mortality associated with the technique. No AKI or renal complications of any of these patients. We frequently give them three to 400 milli equivalents of potassium to arrest the heart while they do the procedure. And then Z-buff using a bicarb-based solution equal or greater to 25 liters in about an hour, maybe an hour and 20 minutes to get the potassium back down. That's a massive amount yeah. of Z-buff, right? It's a lot. But you're using a bicarb-based fluid. Mm -hmm. I'm using it for both the reasons of removing the potassium, but also I am a big believer that it is tremendously helpful for the removal of pro-inflammatory mediators. Mm -hmm and for homeostatic neutrality. It's got everything in it that I need. Bicarb, calcium, no potassium, of course. Um, it ha the sodium is normal. Everything is normal, and it makes the procedure go very well. So that is the end of my slides. You've read both articles. Hey, Ann, you're back. You've read both articles. Um, what's your view? Hey, Ann. Let's start with let's start with Ann over there. How are you? Did you get to see enough of that? I did. I think I cut I cut away from you guys for about ten minutes. So I think I got the gist of uh, everything and a very interesting, informative talk, Joe. I feel like you're preaching to the choir with me <laughs> in terms of how you uh, think about ultrafiltration. Um, I'm also a believer 
in it. I will say just for some data since kind of I, I spent some time in the FTS world. So for ISOCAD, you're looking at a risk adjusted mortality rate in the United States about 2%. Um, if you develop postoperatively uh, renal failure, your mortality goes up to um, about 8%. Mm. So just in and of itself, just that one complication is going to more than triple your, um, you know, the the outcome of mortality in an isolated cab patient. So, you know, anything we can do to avoid that post-op complication is really important. And I don't, I don't know if we spend enough time in the operating room, you know, looking at our, you know, maybe other callers will have more to add to this in terms of what our processes are in cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, you know, what are you looking at before you'll maybe consider a Z-buff? Are you doing it all the time? Is it patient-specific? Are you looking at your creatinine pre-op, your last creatinine prior to going in the room? You know, how are you? I'm a big DO2 believer as well. Um, I think all the things you mentioned are things we all need to really keep in mind. But again, I think when you mentioned the Z-buff, that kind of got me thinking, because um, you're right, people don't really say what they Z-buff with. <laughs> <laughs> or do they need to think more about what they Z-buff with? Um, I can tell you right now, it's very easy for us to all grab normal saline out of our, you know, perfusion card. It's readily available in our OR, but is that the right solution? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't believe. I think we could so. do better there. I think that it is a uh, it is a normal physiologic fluid, but when you're Z, you know. If you give someone 500 or a liter of saline, normal saline, you know, it's, you know, they need it. They need the volume expansion immediately. Um, really no big deal. But when you're doing four, five, six liters of Z-buff while you're on pump in order to get your potassium back down, um, that's a lot of volume and you're you're not volume expanding so you're not taking a patient who's who's necessarily hypovolemic and just trying to volume expand them to get a blood pressure but rather what you're doing is removing a block of volume replacing it with something you're basically replacing your plasma water with something that you want it to look like but in this case it's the last thing we want it to look like it's very acidic um, and uh, it has a very high sodium load. You dilute your bicarb, which causes another problem altogether. It's it has a very high chloride uh, level, and I know there's some dispute about you know hyperchloremic renal failure that can occur or or, or renal injury that can occur. Um, I think it's 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 <clears throat> perhaps somewhat debatable, but uh, some people do believe that. It makes more sense to me to use a. A, a bicarb-based fluid, but the companies that manufacture these fluids only manufacture them in five-liter bags, and it's not cost-effective for them because it's not used. Uh, Plasmalite seems to work just fine. Uh, it's, uh, you know, potentially cheaper, but I don't necessarily think so. A bag of a bag of plasma lights about $14 and a bag of Duosol is probably $21 and that's five liters and the plasma lights only one liter. So I, you know, mm -hmm. I, how do we justify the costs of what we're doing to the benefit uh, to the patient? So maybe it's worth throwing the five, the, the, if you don't use the whole five liters, but if you primed with it, and you uh, had it as your Z-buff fluid, you probably go through one bag of, uh, of five liter fluid in a case. And I, th of course, I believe every patient should be um, Z-buffed uh, for a variety of reasons. Just the surgical incision alone is enough to generate a not insubstantial inflammatory response, which can be blunted to some degree by ultrafiltration or by zero balance ultrafiltration or CVVH, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as perfusionists, depending on you know, who we're working with uh, as surgeons, you know, you know, as well as I do, everybody's got their cardioplegia routine. Um, there's a lot of variation among uh, clinicians, surgeons, and, you know, it's very, 
it mitigates what we try to do. You know, you want to run the perfect case, you want to have all your parameters just so, but when you've got someone who's requesting continuous crystalloid pledgesol, you know, throughout the case, you're dealing mm -hmm. with a lot of volume, you're trying to, you know, get that potassium under control, uh, you know, so that, you know, you don't have Ks in the sevens, and, you know, we're just, we're mitigating all the time. You know, mm -hmm. what, what would we like to do and what do we have to do because of a protocol or, you know, right. surgeon preference. Right. And, of course, you know, facilitating because we're there for two reasons. I think a lot of people lose sight of this in our profession. We are there to keep the patient alive, but we are also there to facilitate the operation being done, the actual reason they're there. So, Ed, we have to balance those two what can I do that won't harm this patient that is just on the edge of physio physiologic normality, though doing heart surgery is anything but normal, um, and, but also be able to allow the surgeon the field that he needs, the dry, still field he needs to do the operation that the patient is there to get. Let me drag uh, Ramsha into this. What say you, Ramsha? I agree with you, Joe. And as you asked me about these uh, articles, I will say this one was very vague. Didn't explain like their methods. When you say this one, which is this the one? The Stammers. The Stammers, uh -huh. So Stammers and his colleagues really didn't like explain their methods of how they're choosing their patient. As you said, how they're, you know, like doing their Z-buff, what solutions they're using, what group are they choosing, they didn't told anything about like their age, anything that like can cause preoperative, like some of the preoperative factors that can cause postoperative AKI. Like they didn't talk about all of that. It was just very vague. Some things that were like um, pulled into attention were like obesity. Mm -hmm. So I would never think like I never thought about that while going, you know, taking patients on bypass, knowing that. So yeah, some things were very helpful while other things like you just questioned like why are they asked like why how did they made that commentary or how did they get to that conclusion? Mm -hmm. Because they really didn't talk about like their patients as a full cohort, like what are they looking at? What patient, you know, they're looking at. They What's just, their demographics? Yeah, their demographics. They just said that they excluded. Comorbidities. Yeah, they just like took out patients, excluded patients out of the study that had like missing data on urine output, filtration use, Z-buff mm -hmm. volume. Like they didn't well, really went into details. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and we can we can both, uh, we, we, you and Ramsha can both sort of comment on this. And I think John is uh, uh, out in Webland also. You know, I'm not really sure that urine output in a one hour or one and a half, 90 minute pump run when you, you know, and we talked a little, I talked a little bit about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and then also you have, you have various receptors in the uh, atria that when you empty the heart are going to be stimulated to release ADH, so you're going to have more reabsorption of water. Is urine output really a good surrogate for us in the operating room, once you take that clamp off the venous line, drain the heart, and start your transition onto cardiopulmonary bypass, and then come down on the flow, put the clamp on, uh, uh, start giving cardioplegia, your dilutional effect starts to take effect, and now you're turning your hemoconcentrator on and you start pulling volume off so that you perhaps can mitigate some of the hemodilution effect of what we're giving, especially with del nido cardioplegia. So all of that is happening, and it happens in a very compressed period of time. So is urine output on cardiopulmonary bypass really an effective means for us to assess renal function? Well, I'm sure John will, will, will give us a lot of good information on this, but I mean, it, I, 
just kind of it makes me feel better, Joe. <laughs> when I have good urine output on my pads, I just feel better. I feel that the patients, you know, doing their kind of their own ultrafiltration and they're working, the kidneys must be working. So just fundamentally I just feel better. I can't I agree with but I, but I do too. Will I agree with Anne. <laughs> I will ask I will ask. Are we making any urine? But I don't know how you are. I'll, 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 I'll see what you think, Ramsha, uh, John, when we pull him in. But I'll say, you know, hey, are we making any urine? And they'll say, uh, yeah, we've made about 70 cc's. It'll be maybe 30 cc's into the procedure, right? Now, was that there before I went on bypass or not? But I'll think to myself, oh, good, we're making urine. Then I'll ask again, and, or, or, or I'll ask at a different time on a different case, and I'll say, hey, we're making any urine back there? Eh, I've only had about 20 cc's for the past hour and a half. Eh, that's okay. I'm not worried about that. So, I mean, what am I going to do different? Am I going to give the patient... Lasix? Do I want to furosemide? Do I want to do I want to treat that with a nephrotoxic agent? Am I not? What's my perfusion pressure? Is there a reason? Is there a justification why they may not be making urine? Do people make urine normally the same in, on bypass as they do? And that's I think where I'm having to try to wrap my head around how does a kidney get affected by a CVP of zero and loss of or an immediate transition to continuous versus pulsatile flow and then all the other hormonal issues that take place when you go on bypass. John, you got anything to add? Oh, where'd he go? You had him on the phone. Oh, 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 you just hit the wrong button. Okay, John, if you want to, so what do you think? I think it's very important. Like for me, I try to see like their weight. And actually before like even looking at their weight, I look at their labs mm -hmm. and make sure that if they're going into AKI, looking at their BUN and creatinine mm -hmm. levels and their GFRs. And then um, during bypass, if they don't have any kidney problems, AKIs or renal mm -hmm. issues, then I try to make sure that they're like um, pulling out their weight, mm -hmm. the amount of their weight like per hour. Mm -hmm. So it's like one to three cc's per kilogram per hour. Mm -hmm. I try to look at that. And if they're not, then I will, you know, in some of the cases that our surgeons don't like um, hemoconcentrator, then I will just put one in to try to take that off. And this is where so I, I am going with this. So I Who doesn't like hemoconcentration and why? Where are they getting the idea that hemoconcentration reduces urine output. It, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. From a commonsensical perspective, if you have an open system cardiopulmonary bypass and you have a CVP of zero and all you're doing is ultrafiltrating the fluid in your reservoir, how can and you're all you're doing is increasing the 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 the, the oxygen uh, oxygen delivery to the yeah. to the kidney how does ultrafiltration of your reservoir affect urine output now if you want to argue well you're pulling volume back from your third space and bringing it back in because you're increasing your collar oncotic pressure well that should theoretically increase be it be be a benefit to the kidney because you're going to reduce uh, 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 edema of the kidney you're going to increase your 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 perfusion to the kidney i mean there's a whole lot of things that in my view play a positive role on giving using ultrafiltration during cardiopulmonary bypass and i think z buff so i'm a big believer in cvvh yeah. in the icu cvvh in the icu conversely in my view does not reduce urine output has nothing to do with your reducing urine output because you're not affecting the patient's blood volume you're doing cvvh you're replacing the plasma water but it doesn't affect those things that cause the kidney to want to produce urine just keeps you from generating waste products, metabolites that actually damage the kidney, 
even farther. So yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me. Physiologically, it makes no sense to me, no matter how hard I try to understand this. Yeah. So like with some of But the people write this kind of stuff and some surgeon reads it and says, oh, there it is. There's proof. Yep. Ultrafiltration is bad. Don't do ultrafiltration on my cases. So they have a hemoglobin of five yeah. and they're giving transfusing blood. And then they're wondering why those patients don't look that well. They have to be on rocket fuel to get them off bypass and uh, they go into kidney injury, but you didn't do any ultrafiltration. I think the renal failure complication associated with not using ultrafiltration far and away exceeds that, that uh, ultra, I don't think ultrafiltration causes acute kidney injury in any way, shape or form. I think, it's, I think it is absolutely absurd to think that it does. Yeah. That's my view anyway. I'm not trying to be opinionated here, Ann. <laughs> but so, so Joe, I'm sorry, I missed a, maybe a few minutes here. Do you ultrafiltrate every case? Uh, yes every case so if i uh uh now of course if the if the patient were for example um you know uh diureased significantly prior to the procedure and there was no volume i was having to add volume to the patient in order to have flow i'm not going to ultrafiltrate if i don't have the volume to ultrafiltrates but that's extremely rare most cases that i do i go on bypass and my venous reservoir has two and a half liters in it or three liters in it and I simply don't need that much and then I'm going to give 1200 of uh, of uh, of Del Nido and so that volume is going to go somewhere and if I do nothing that volume not through the urine output that volume will eventually disappear but where it disappears is the interstitial space and now you have a patient who is fluid overloaded but you know that goes to the ICU on the other hand, and I understand the argument with this, I take the volume out, maybe I'm too aggressive, and the patient is interstitially maybe a little bit dry, and you take the patient to the ICU, and then they have uh, fluid shifts and third spacing, and they're chasing volume, and they're like, oh, what happened here? Why is this happening? Everybody gets all up in arms, and then they're like, well, it's too much ultrafiltration uh, in, the, in the case. Um, so, you know, you got to pick your poison, but in my, you know, when you look at the data, and there is a tremendous amount of data out there, drier patients, critically ill drier patients, that is, critically ill patients, drier patients do better. You're better off being dry, or what we call dry, tissue hypovolemic um, versus overhydrated or hypervolemic. Those patients do not do as well. So the data is the data, and it leans very heavily towards drier patients do better. Hold on one second. A caller, John, is it John? Okay, yeah, John, hey. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're here. We've got Ramsha. We've got Ann. Yeah, hi, 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 ladies. I've been watching. You guys look great. So, um, you know, Joe, I, I often say that new, new perfusionists have come through wherever I'm working and talk, talk about this topic. The number one thing that first happens when we go on non-pulsatile perfusion is we immediately have a tendency in our bodies to tend to, uh, immediately tend to fluid shift to the interstitium just due to the non-pulsatile flow. You could have a decent osmotic pressure, but when you go on non-pulsatile flow, you automatically have fluid shift uh, to, to the interstitium. So right off the bat, we're, as perfusionists, we're fighting this fluid shift to the interstitium. So this is why you have so many people putting albumin in their pump and putting in that manitol stuff because we need to combat this fluid shift, number one. And so, to me, it's kind of hard to dry out the interstitial. We'd have to work pretty hard to do that, I suppose it's possible. But the, uh, the other thing that happens is when we, when we hemodilute, we, 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 we decrease our hematocrit, so we decrease our delivery of oxygen to the kidney, which is really where we're get going with this, the more we keep researching the topic, and, presenting it with uh, on your program. Um, 
but the, when you say that you use a hemofilter, and a lot of these studies that implicate the hemofilter as somehow uh, having a lesser outcome, generally are only using the hemofilter on their sickest patients. Mm-hmm. I saw a study the other day from my talk yesterday where they used a hemofilter on only their sickest patients, and then they said, well, we had a very poor uh, outcome when we used the hemofilter, but their comorbidities were triple of the ones that they didn't use the hemoconcentrator on. So, and that was number one, you have to watch for that. But when you have a hemofilter, there was many years, like you, Joe, I used the hemofilter on every single case. Uh, very rare, the patient somehow had so little volume and you couldn't use it. Uh, but that was almost impossible because we were giving all crystalloid cardioplegia back then. But um, you, you have to just understand that the hemofilter is nothing more than an assistant to the kidney. Um, you know, like if you help me bring in the groceries, and I say on a study, well, every time Joe helps me bring in the groceries, I only bring in half as many groceries. That's what, that's what you're saying by saying when you use the hemofilter, the urine only, uh, the, the kidneys only put out half as much urine. Well, well, the hemofilter aided and assisted the, 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 the kidneys in, in that process. So you can't look at urine output only. You have to look at things far, far more physiologically deeper than that. And I, I think we talked about that some yesterday. Um, and the other thing about debuffing is that the implications for mass volumes of saline and the chloride load, I mean, there may be controversial articles, but a lot of the ones that I find are pretty, pretty convincing that this massive amount of chloride is a direct, it, uh, it directly uh, increases your risk for AKI. I was just pulling up an article right now when you guys were talking. And um, so if you're going to sit there and debuff somebody three liters or whatever of saline and then say, oh, well, look, every time we do this, we're hemoconcentrating and we have AKI, it's not the hemoconcentrator. It's far more likely mass volume of saline. There's even a call in the renal uh, community for an abandonment of the use of saline for altogether in all applications. And, and this has been around for over 10 years because of what they've seen as uh, a serious um, issue with AKI using uh, some, in some cases just a small amount of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you have to also recognize what are we ultrafiltrating for? Yeah. And I think you have to ask yourself whenever you're going to do anything does this patient need volume removed um, and will it benefit me will i will it compromise my flow will it create a uh, a, a, a hypovolemia that is going to be uh, problematic for the patient um, and if uh, the patient uh, in addition to that needs some type of metabolite clearance, uh, acid-base disturbance correction, uh, uh, met, uh, uh, electrolyte correction, uh, whatever the case may be, whether it be hyperkalemia or whatever, then that is a different procedure. So ultrafiltration for removal of fluid is done for one purpose. Z-buff is going to be done for a completely different purpose. Ultrafiltration for fluid removal does not affect the, 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 the physiologic parameters of the patient, acid-based electrolytes or anything else. All it does is just changes the fluid volume, makes it less. Z-buff, on the other hand, is going to replace plasma water with something else, whether that be saline, whether it be isolite, whether it be normal physiologic uh, or bicarb-based fluid, I guess would be more appropriate to say. So you really have to understand, am I trying to use this for inflammatory mediator attenuation? That's a completely different thing and requires much greater volumes. So you have to uh, understand what you're doing. You have a patient who has, for example, um, contrast nephropathy and uh, you uh, do, you know, one of the treatments for that is actually CVVH in the ICU postoperatively uh, a day or two prior to doing the patient's surgery, and you reduce your uh, need for dialysis in those patients significantly by the data um, if you do that. So you use it a couple of days prior to. 
uh, and then you use it a day after surgery um, or the day of, you know, post-op day one and then the next day, and you uh, have much better outcomes for patients who do develop or you're concerned about developing contrast nephropathy. So it depends on what you're using it for and what we're calling ultrafiltration and Z-buff and MUF, because MUF, the way I view MUF is you come off bypass, you leave the cannulas in, and you're basically removing fluid off of that patient, more like in the pediatric world. But modified ultrafiltration can be anything because it doesn't really define it. It's a very broad term, modified in some way. I I'm not sure we understand what that really means. It's not very specific. Well, Joe, I'd ask you another question. Do you have any um, volume guidelines based on patient size, blood volume for your um, ultrafiltration goals or parameters when, you're, when you do ultrafiltration? I do, but, but not in that context. So when I do a case, I, I look at all of the various things about the patient, but one of the key things I look at for, from a volume perspective is the patient's albumin. If the patient's albumin is relatively normal, then I am not going to expect that patient is going to have a large total body water load and likely correcting that's not going to have much, and there's really nothing to correct there. Um, I do add albumin to my prime to try and maintain that COP. I don't want to dilute it down. If the patient, on the other hand, is hypoalbuminemic, then I will correct that albumin both with albumin infusion and ultrafiltration to get my COP to a normalized level. I tend to like it a little higher than, than, than like on the high side of normal. And then whatever volume I have that I can remove, leaving myself adequate volume to transition the patient off cardiopulmonary bypass uh, without having to pour in a bunch of fluid is where I want to be. So that's basically how I do what I do. What about you? Yeah, I probably, so I look at their hemoglobin and hematocrits during bypass and also when we're giving the delnido, I try taking that volume off. And then I do look at their albumin levels, as you say. And according to that, as you said, like looking at their levels, if I have enough, then I will take that off. Mm -hmm. And also looking at their urine, too. Mm -hmm. so well, what I have the, found, now to say I just leave the oh. urine alone, but what I have found is if the patient's albumin is under two, mm -hmm. I'm get, and I don't treat it, I don't deal with it, I will keep giving that patient volume yeah. and never seem to have enough volume. Mm -hmm. It's going somewhere. Yeah. And conversely, when I have the albumin closer to four and a half or five, I find myself not needing as much volume, you know, excluding any other bleeding source or other problem that could be occurring. But that volume that the patient has tends to stay in the intravascular space, which helps me tremendously be able to flow sufficiently and remove fluid. And of course, as your albumin goes up, your plasma refill rate increases. So you pull more fluid from the interstitial space that may not need to be there. Look, people are having heart surgery because they're sick usually, yeah. okay? So they have, they, they definitely have frequently a, uh, a degree of heart failure. And so you are going to have a not insubstantial amount of volume out in their uh, third space yeah. uh, that, that, that you need to pull back out. It helps with perfusion yeah. because parenchymal edema is very, very bad for perfusion through the organ. And uh, in addition to that, uh, you have more pulmonary edema, you have more problems getting patients off the ventilator. And the data, again, I don't want to keep pressing the issue, but the data is, is, is extensive and conclusive. Drier patients that are critically ill do better yeah that's just uh it's uh, as far as i'm concerned that's a that's an, an understood fact so in my view 
not ultrafiltrating mm -hmm. is is harmful to patients versus ultrafiltration in any way being harmful to patients is my perspective. Okay, John, any final thoughts? Yeah, for uh, nearly 10 years, I used a hemoconcentrator on every single case. And um, without a doubt, we had far less blood product usage. Patients were extubated quicker. They left the ICU quicker. They woke up sooner. They had less pulmonary edema, less cardiac, uh, cardiac edema, less cerebral edema and they were in and out of the ICU much quicker. So every perfusionist at this institution where I work, and we did over 600 hearts a year, um, used the hemoconcentrator on every case. And um, I'm uh, just disappointed in the last 10 or so years that there's been several articles and they've made their way into the cardiac surgeon journals is the problem. Mm -hmm. Some of these articles have made their way into the cardiac surgical journals. They've, They've taken hold of it, and I've worked at many places where the surgeons have absolutely banned the use of the hemoconcentrator. If you use it as a perfusion, you better throw a blanket over your, your circuit in case the surgeon would see it. You're going to get blasted. You know, it's just ludicrous that something like this has come out that we know for almost 45 years has been enormously beneficial in a dozen ways. And there's a presentation that I did on your show, Joe, about a year and a half, two years ago, about the, the effects of hemofiltration in history and all these things that it, that it does and doesn't do. And it's only about 25 minutes. I'd encourage maybe uh, somehow you guys uh, uh, showing that to, to your audience at some point. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay. Check the website out. Ramsha, thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts? Nope. None? You sure? You did a good job, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Is working for HET the best job you've ever had? I will say so far. Is it the only job you've ever had in perfusion? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> Probably. No, it's better. I think it is. <laughs> Unless something is we don't know about. No, it is. It is? Uh -huh. Okay, but it's still the best. It is the best. Okay, that's all that matters. So join Ramsha on our team. You get to be here in the studio with me as well. You could be in that chair right there. I know you can't see it right now, but it's right next to Ramsha. It's right there. We have a spot for you. Um, join us. We're, we're, we have a lot of fun. We have a great time. We really debate some topics. People have passionate views. Um, we feel like we're right most of the time. Um, in fact, frequently wrong, never in doubt. So I believe I'm right all the time, actually. But even I can still learn things. And if anybody has a contrary view to anything, let's have a discussion about it, a lively discussion about it. And we can all uh, uh, learn and do better for our patients at the end of the day. Check our website out for our future schedule and because that's coming out very soon. But uh, this concludes PerfWeb78, uh, eligible for, I think, 3.6 total CEU through the ABCP. Modima, thank you very much again for your continued participation. John Ingram, thank you very much. Um, all the Anne, of course, thank you. Um, who else did we have on here today? Anybody? Nope. No, I'll tell you what, Medima, you need to just join our group. I don't know where you are. We've been asking you for your address. I don't think, has she ever sent it? Modima? And look, and here's Joy Patel. Hey, Joy, what's going on? It's great to see you. Um, so we've got some great folks, but Medima, we owe you a couple of cups and some shirts and hats and things. You need to let us know how to send them to you, how to mail them to you, okay? Um, that's it. Be safe. We'll talk to you soon.